Once upon a time, there was a king who was more powerful than any king on the earth. All the other nations of the world were terrified by him. He ruled with an iron fist. He controlled the world. And then one day, he fell in love with a humble peasant girl. And he wanted to express his love for her, wanted to marry her, but was terribly frustrated by how he being the king, she being a poor peasant girl, could ever feel a sense of equality. He thought, I could go bring her to the palace, put a crown of jewels on her head and jewels on her fingers and put her in the lap of this marvelous luxury of the palace. And because I'm all powerful, she would do that. She would accede to that. But would she love me? He thought, possibly if I got the royal coach with my retinue of soldiers carrying banners and went riding up in front of her humble cottage, she would be overwhelmed. She would feel humbled and grateful and would accept my request for marriage because I'm the king. But would she love me? So he decided that he would go incognito take off his royal robes, put on the shattered, tattered coat of a beggar, and would go down to her humble cottage to try to woo her and to lead her to love him as he loved her, as equals. He renounced his throne so he would become an equal to this humble maiden. That little story, written in the 1800s by a Danish theologian philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, is a parable of Christmas, of Calvary, of love, and of God. And Kierkegaard made this statement, only in love that the unequal 
can be made equal. Only in love that the unequal can be made equal. That's true personally. That's true socially. That's true racially. Only in love can unequals be made equal. And so he condescended to become her equal. It's a parable of God who descended, who condescended to be like us. I read it again. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God to be a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to give a short but very meaningful Bible study here for a moment. I want you to let me lift a couple of three of these words out of Paul's marvelous description of the condescension of God, the great all-powerful king who laid, us all, laid aside all of the regality of his kingdom, laid aside his crown and his royal robes and his all-powerful leadership of the old in the entire universe to come to be equal with us that the Son of God would become a Son of Man, that we sons of men might become sons of God. That God became like us so that we could become like Him, knowing that we could never ascend to be who He was and where He was and like He is, He condescended to come to us. Please let that sink in this Christmas. This is God laying aside all of the accoutrements of regality, kingship, lordship, majesty, sovereignty, to become a helpless little baby, to become like us. This was no act God was putting on. And here's the Bible study. I'd like, if you have your Bibles, you might want to look at it. You might want to underline a word or two. You might want to make a note. It's a powerful statement of what the incarnation is all about, the mystery of it, the magnificence of it. Have this attitude in yourselves, or as the King James says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form 
of a slave and being made in the likeness of man. Form. There are two Greek words that are both translated into English as form, F-O-R-M. The Greek language being much more expressive than any other language ever spoken or written, much more expressive than even the English language. There are two Greek words that are translated into English as form. One is morphe and the other is schema. The The word morphe means essential nature, the essential nature of a person. For example, my essential nature is manhood. I'm a heterosexual male. That is my essential nature. That's morphe. Now, schema is the outward expression of that that changes. That's also translated form. Schema, for example, my essential nature is man, a manhood, a person, the person of Buckner Fanning. That's morphe. But schema, that form expresses itself in another form that's also translated that way in English, but has a different Greek word, schema. That manhood expressed itself as a little infant at one time. And then as a baby, an infant, baby, a young man, a a teenager, middle-aged, older, all of the many seasons of life are schema. Those, that form changes, but the essential nature does not change. Whether at two or seventy, the form, the nature of the person is the same. So here is God saying, who although he existed as the very nature of God, one with God, he is God. That is his essential nature. But he did not regard that equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now that word there means that he, like a pitcher, takes and pours all of the water out of it. He took himself and poured all of himself out. It is beyond our human comprehension. We're, we're, we're talking about things that we cannot explain. He emptied himself. He poured out all that he was, taking the essential nature of us, of a man. Now, we are dealing here with something that we cannot fully explain. We cannot explain how that happened. That God became essentially, by nature, morphe, a man. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Holy God and holy man. He was 100% God. That was his Morphe, he laid that aside and took upon himself the morphe of a man. He became like us, God and man together in this incomparable, indefinable, incomprehensible incarnation, God and man in one person. Because it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. 
And it is only in this God-man bringing divinity and humanity, the essential nature of both, together that we become one. He became like us in nature. No play acting here. No pretense here. No sham here. No hypocrisy here. He was a man. Fully, holy, totally man in all but sin. He chose not to deny or doubt the Father. God and man together in the incarnation. Made in the likeness of men. Now that word man there, made there, is, is a different Greek word that means an ongoing state but not a permanent existence. He emptied himself, took upon himself the form, the essential nature of a man, and being made in the likeness of men. That was not to be a permanent likeness. That was not to be a permanent morphe. That was to be something that in the resurrection became totally God, holy God again, bringing us into this loving relationship with him, to him because of the love that makes us equal. Profound theology in this second chapter of the book of Philippians. Your essential nature is a man being brought together in conjunction with and by faith being joined together with the essential nature of the God-man, the man in him reaching out to the man in you, that the God he is can make you one with him. Have you ever stopped to wonder how did Christmas feel to God? Conjure that some during these days of this month. How did Christmas feel to God? To condescend, to lay aside as Kierkegaard spoke about in that little parable, to renounce his throne, to lay aside all of his power, all of the pomp and circumstance, How did Christmas feel to God? He who created the universe, he from whose fingers dripped the stars and he placed the galaxies in space, who made everything that is, condescended to become a baby, a helpless baby. He couldn't talk. He who had spoken worlds into existence couldn't talk, couldn't walk, couldn't hold anything with his little helpless hands. Couldn't feed himself. had to have someone take care of his bodily functions. Can you begin to even imagine the condescension 
of God in becoming a little baby. Maybe it will help us to, to ask this question. How would you feel to become a baby again? You'd have to learn to talk all over again. You wouldn't know how to walk. You couldn't do anything for yourself. You'd be completely dependent upon others. If you emptied yourself as you are now and became a helpless little tiny infant, how would you feel? Laying aside all of the accomplishments that you've made, all of the influence that you have, all of the possessions that are yours, all of the influence that you have in the world, lay all of that aside and become a little baby to peasant parents and to live in a barn. Or to take it a step further, <clears throat> how would you feel to condescend to become a frog, an earthworm? For me to condescend to become an earthworm does not even begin to compare with the condescension of God to become a man. Sometimes in our ego, in our selfishness, in our worship of ourselves, we think that God was really getting something when he got us. That we are so special and so wonderful and so noble and so effective, and so successful that God is doing us a favor. And we're doing him a favor to let him come into our lives. He became sin for us. He took upon himself the form of a man and the essential morphine nature of a man is sin. He never sinned, but he took mine and yours and ours. He took our place. Because it's only in love that the unequal can be made equal. I met Ernest Gordon. He was a chaplain, familiar with the terrible experiences of the British when they were captured by the Japanese. And they built the bridge over the River Kwai. Do you remember the movie? And remember the story. 
Ernest Gordon, the chaplain, wrote a book entitled Through the Valley of the Kwai. And in that book, he tells a true, a true story, many of them, but this one specifically for us today. The British prisoners, Scotsmen, Canadians, and others, prisoners of the Japanese during World War II, were being forced to build a bridge over the River Kwai. They came in from the work detail one day, and the Japanese guard was infuriated because one shovel was missing. And he went into a rage of anger, accusing whoever did it of betraying the emperor by giving or selling a shovel to one of the Thais people. So he stood them there in front of him and in a vociferous outburst of angry, cursed them, degraded them, called them everything imaginable, and said, the man who sold the shovel, step forward or every one of you will be punished. No one moved. His rage continued, and finally he said, I will kill every one of you if the man who stole or sold that shovel does not step forward to take his punishment. No one moved. He threw the bolt on that rifle, putting a shell into the chamber, and he picked it up and started to aim it at the first man in the first squad, and he was going to carry out his threat. He was going to shoot every single one of them. And suddenly, a tall, straight Scotsman by the name of Argyle stepped out and said, I did it. The Japanese guard flew into an even greater rage and he began to beat him and to hit him and to kick him and to spit on him and his face began to be covered with blood but he never made a sound. He just stood there, never moaned, never groaned, and never cried out. Just took this vociferous beating at the hands of this Japanese guard. And the Japanese guard was more infuriated than ever because there was no cry for mercy. There was no cry of pain. He stood there taking it in silence, blood dripping from his face. And finally, in desperation, the Japanese guard took the barrel of the rifle and lifted it over his head and came down on the top of Argyle's head with the butt of the rifle, and he slumped to the ground, motionless. And even in that condition, the guard continued to kick him and to stomp on him and to curse him And then his fury having been, having been spent, dismissed them and walked away. The soldiers picked up the lifeless form of their friend Argyle, picked up their tools, and walked back to the barracks, carrying him.
When they got there and went to the guardhouse to turn in their tools, no shovel was missing. Greater love hath no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Greater love hath no God than this, than to lay down his life for sinners like us. Surely, Isaiah tells us, he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The punishment of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter or like a sheep that before his shearers is dumb, yet he opened not his mouth. But he opened his heart to you. He stepped out, the sinless Son of God, holy man and holy God. He stepped out for you and said, I did it. And became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made into the righteousness of God. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal with the Father. That's what Christmas and the cross and the gospel and the heart of God is all about. That's it. Who wouldn't worship him? Who would postpone following a God like that? Who could ignore a love like that? Whosoever will may come.